John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 820.JE5022, certificate number 27008. Mutual Assured Destruction. Roger, understand. Over 300 missiles inbound now. Hey! Oh, come on, baby, don't die on me now! So mutual assured destruction is a doctrine, not just a philosophical concept, but also a, like actually a a foreign policy, which stipulates that post the advent of nuclear weapons, basically the only deterrent to using these weapons is the assuredness that your enemy will use them against you and that both of you will wipe each other off the face of the earth. And so there's no way to win a nuclear war. And that somehow, the fact that each side has the capability to devastate the other, to basically effectively like eliminate civilization, is the deterrent that keeps you from using the weapons. But what that necessitates is that there be a kind of parity, either an actual parity or a perceived parity of capability to destroy the other. Sure which instituted an arms race between the the United States and the USSR throughout the, well, throughout the post-war period, all the way up until the dissolution of the USSR in 1991, but in fact continues to this day in the form of a whole branch of our military, a whole concept of our military, which is always ready to unleash hellfire upon our enemies and also prepared to receive a similar hellfire directed at us. And to, and to do so in the name of keeping peace, right? Like, this is what maintains peace on Earth, is that we uh, are on a hair trigger to destroy civilization. Right, at all times. So apparently, from the time the first nuclear weapon was exploded, it was understood that there was nothing else we could do except continue to build them assume our enemy was building them, our enemy in this case, the Soviet Union, assuming our enemy was 
also trying to figure out new and novel ways to circumvent our defense against them so that we had to continue to try and circumvent their defense because the only way that we could keep from being eliminated, presuming the enemy was bent on destroying us with a first strike, was to maintain the capacity to also deliver a first strike to them. I mean, it's a crazy it's, mentality. It's like mirrors reflecting mirrors. It's it's game theory, right? It's game theory, and yet it drove American foreign policy and costs cost us hundreds of billions of dollars and the Soviet Union. It basically bankrupted them as a nation. Uh, constantly evolving this capacity to not only wipe them off the face of the earth, but also ourselves. Well, as we think back on the situation now in the early 21st century, we have the luxury of speaking from a time where nothing ever went wrong, touching off global nuclear conflagration. Right. But our listeners may be listening. They may be chuckling up their sleeves as they hear us talking now because they may be looking back from a time frame and from which something very clearly did go wrong at some point. And that's the amazing thing about our present day, because for decades, from 1949, when this, the Soviet Union exploded their first nuclear weapon, to 1991, when the Cold War basically ended in its original form, both countries, and in fact the world, lived in a constant state of anxiety and awareness that really, because the whole idea was premised on a preemptive strike, a secret launch of weapons to eliminate your enemy's weapons before they could be used against you. There was a constant state of anxiety 24 hours a day waiting for the bomb. And from the perspective of 2017, we don't feel that anxiety all the time. Yeah, people of our, not of our generation maybe don't understand what that kind of childhood was like. I had nightmares sure. about, you know, I remember watching the day after in 1983. It's some very vivid view of America under nuclear fire. It horrified the nation. There was an episode of the TV sitcom Benson that takes place. <laughs> Benson, as you may recall, was a spinoff character from Soap. Of course. But he becomes an aide to the governor of some unnamed Midwestern state. But I remember an episode taking, that takes place beneath the governor's mansion as they're in a bunker drilling for some kind of disaster. And it's clearly a very special episode that's really supposed to give you the weight of geopolitical, uh, you know, tragedy. And I just remember being horrified by Benson and not being able to sleep that night because of this vision of the end of the world that had been delivered to me by this sitcom. Well, what's crazy is that in the initial period after World War II, after the Soviets exploded their first bomb, there was a period where this concept was clear. I mean, uh, President Eisenhower understood that there wasn't a way to use this bomb in any kind of conventional context. Once you explode it, you have, you've initiated a situation where they will retaliate. You can't destroy a whole city if your enemy has the capacity to retaliate Likewise. And, and in fact, it would break the whole system if you could wipe out their first strike capability, right? It would. It would. The it, system only works if they can still kill you with their last flailing scorpion tail breath, right? Yeah. If you can kill them with this much power. That's not mutual assured destruction. It's not. It's you assuring their destruction. 
but in those early years, in the 1950s, we didn't really have the capability to deliver a nuclear bomb to the middle of Russia. And they certainly did not have the capability to deliver bombs to us. That's interesting. Hiroshima is less of the problem than inventing the intercontinental ballistic missile. That's right. The ballistic missiles did not exist in a way that could go from, uh, from Nebraska to Minsk. And they didn't have that technology either. There were no submarines capable of traversing the earth and their missiles were even less effective. So really all that there were were bombers. And during the 50s, the premise of MAD was that we would keep bombers, giant fleets of bombers filled with bombs. We would keep them in the air 24 hours a day. At all times. They would be refueled aerially and they would fly very close to what's called a fail-safe point, which is they're right there sort of on the border of Russia from all sides, you know, ready for that command from Washington to go past that failsafe point, at which point they would be like irretrievable, headed from all sides to eliminate their targets within the Soviet Union. Let me ask you this. You just called it mad, like the magazine, just second nature. Do you think, would people have said that? Did people know that the acronym for this insane global strategy was mad? They did know that. And it was, I mean, Eisenhower himself, who had, who was America's most famous general. But also skeptical of the military industrial complex and all that it implied, right? And that skepticism was developed throughout this period, watching the military try and formulate how they were going to, initially the question was, how do we survive this kind of attack, a preemptive attack on the part of the Soviet Union. But if we can survive, then it doesn't work. Well, but you try to survive and then- And they try to they survive. They try to survive and you try to destroy their bunkers and they try to destroy your bunkers. And this is how you maintain this parody. It's odd that this kind of parody is only maintained through, you know, expensive military expenditure and constant innovation. You know, it seems like that's the kind of thing people would be incentivized to want anyway. And weird, this insane thing will give us global peace. Right. And it is insane that at some point in the mid-1950s, there wasn't a kind of handshake across a table where everybody agreed, okay, we, we each have 50 missiles. That is an untenable situation. If we each destroyed our 50 largest cities, it would be, a, you know, a, a historic catastrophe. So let's just agree to stop. Let's just, we did it. let's put this to, to bed and we can go on making tractors and beating swords into plowshares. But that isn't how it played out. And in fact, Khrushchev, who was the premier of the Soviet Union, also recognized the insanity. I mean, none of these uh, leaders wanted the burden on their shoulders. And none of them, of course, wanted to go down in history as the ones who launched an, an attack of this scope. So they were... Eisenhower and Khrushchev were navigating and kind of dancing around each other, trying to communicate this to one another, that this was insane and that we had to figure out a solution. But right at that period, right in between two conferences, the Soviets shot down the U-2 airplane, surveillance airplane, piloted by Francis Gary Powers. I think he's a distant cousin of mine, by the way. 
Francis that's, Gary Powers. That's probably of no interest to anyone, but except my grandparents. It's tremendously interesting to me. Yeah, I didn't realize he uh, condemned all of humanity to uh, inevitable destruction with his lousy piloting. Well, well, at the time, the Soviets knew that we had the ability to overfly them. And this was something they didn't possess. They could not, they didn't have these long range, high altitude airplanes. And up until that point, the planes were too high to be shot down. And they complained. They complained to the United States and to the United Nations about these overflights. But we were using the planes to spy on them. And it was, again, a part of an early version of MAD. If we could see their missile silos, we could better target them. If we could see them from the air, we could, you know, assure their destruction in a way that would suppress their desire to preemptively strike us. But when they finally shot that U-2 down, it was enough of an insult that Khrushchev couldn't save face uh, by, you know, or rather to come to us and, and reach some kind of agreement where we wouldn't participate in this arm race. It, he would have lost face in a way that he couldn't have tolerated. Yeah, the escalation is not really necessary for the game theory to work, as you say, you know? Like, it doesn't matter if both, unless both sides, you know, if both sides agree not to get better or not to develop a missile shield or whatever, um, it still works. Well, and this was, a, this was a failure of intelligence, largely. Uh, a failure of intelligence. We couldn't discern exactly how many warheads they were producing. And then the Soviets did a big leap, which was they put Sputnik into space and then they put, they put a cosmonaut into space. Sputnik is just a, you know, it's a thing about the size of a, what? It's small, size of a bass drum or something, spinning around the earth, doing nothing but beeping every end seconds. And people flipped out. The Russians are over our heads right now. You know, we live in a world where it's commonplace to just assume that hundreds of satellites are crisscrossing the space above us. But at the time, that was not a thing. So the, just the psychic weight of knowing that the Russians were up there and could do anything at any time right above our heads, uh, that really changed the way people thought. Well, and that you could sit in the comfort of your own living room, tune your shortwave radio, which, of course, at the time, every household had a shortwave radio, and actually hear Sputnik. It was audibly beeping, which was horrifying. And, and it suggested that they had a missile technology that we didn't possess. If they could put Sputnik into space, then they could also deliver uh, warheads to sort of with pinpoint accuracy. Now, that isn't the case. It's very difficult to deliver a bomb via uh, ICBM. But it didn't keep it from becoming a political issue in the campaign between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Nixon was Eisenhower's vice president, and Kennedy ran against effectively ran against the Eisenhower administration by claiming there was a missile gap. The United States was behind the Soviets. And it was a way that he, as a liberal Democrat, could present himself as hawkish in a military sense. Did it turn out to be true? Like, I, I assume all these, uh, you know, our military is incentivized to make the enemy appear to be a bigger and more capable boogeyman than they actually are. And I feel like in a lot of these cases, the end of the Cold War revealed that... Uh, that we were not outmatched in the way people kept telling us we were. It was profoundly untrue. We, there was no missile gap. We had 
exponentially more warheads and better missiles and more missiles than they did. And Kennedy knew it. Ah. It was a it was a thing that he turned to his political advantage. But shortly after he was elected, the Soviets then put Yuri Gagarin into space, who was the first man to orbit the Earth. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout have you ever have you ever heard the theory that the soviets put a lot of guys into space and then just didn't tell us until they actually got one back well yeah i have heard that theory (laughs) and there are there are terrible recordings of soviet cosmonauts burning up in in re-entry and screaming at their at their masters they went they often would go into space knowing that they wouldn't survive but you're a gagarin whether he's number 36 or number one (laughs) actually makes it back. He made it back. And again, that was like uh, deeply shocking. And that, that prompted Kennedy to say that by 1970, we would put a man on the moon, but also it was another instance in this arm race. And the Cuban missile crisis was another example uh, where the, uh, the Soviets were putting missiles that could reach the United States in Cuba. This, is, this should have been evidence that they couldn't fire them from Ukraine, uh, <laughs> that they needed to put these missiles in Cuba to reach the, the United States. But we blockaded them. It was a terrible event and one of the closest moments in the Cold War to a, a moment where the, I mean, the whole military command was suggesting to Kennedy that he needed to strike them first because the presence of those missiles in Cuba uh, reduced the amount of time, reduced the amount of warning that we would have to their missile launch to a matter of a couple of minutes. And so they now possessed the capability to eliminate our ability to reply to them, thereby negating mutually assured destruction. But I never understand this part of it. Like the Cuban Missile Crisis ends when Kennedy quietly agrees to remove U.S. missiles from Turkey, right? Right. We had missiles. That means we had missiles closer to the Soviet Union than Cuba is to Florida, right? We absolutely did. And this was the part of the Cuban Missile Crisis that never comes out, which was that we had instigated this by putting missiles in Turkey, which... It seems like mad is just kabuki. Like, when it benefits us, we're like, hey, this would... uh, this would interfere with our ability to mutually assuredly destroy you. But when we can do it to them, yeah, that's actually okay. You, that's their problem to figure out. Well, sure, because that's the whole premise of MAD, that your enemy is trying to subvert it. And so then you're trying to, you know, this is the thing about, about a victim identity. You always think that you are on defense and you're often actually on offense, but you're, you, but you imagine yourself attacking from a place of vulnerability. 
And that was what was constantly happening between these two countries throughout the second half of the 20th century. So you're saying mutual assured destruction can happen in relationship contexts as well. It absolutely can. And in fact, the, the idea long predates the advent of nuclear weapons. In fact, the Gatling gun, which was invented by Richard Gatling. This is an early repeating rifle, like a precursor to the machine gun, right? So this is, this is immediately before the American Civil War. It was a, it's very early. It was a gun which where you rotated a handle, and it spun a series of barrels. And as the barrel came past the firing pin, it would shoot a bullet down the barrel. And the problem with a repeating rifle was the barrels would overheat. Like, how would, you, how would the mechanism work that you would send multiple bullets down a single barrel? And he devised this system where uh, the, the barrels actually rotated, multiple barrels. I think more guns should still have cranks to this day. Like, people firing a gun should look like an old-timey movie director or an organ grinder or something. And we still use Gatling guns to this day. I mean, the, we use them in jet fighters like the A-10. There are Gatling guns on, on tanks. I mean, it's still a... a a viable way of delivering bullets downrange. But the Gatling gun, when he introduced it, one of the reasons he developed the idea was that he thought that once you had the ability to shoot a gun rapid fire like that, it would make war so intolerable that it would be an instrument of peace. I be guess this is just the genie in the bottle problem that you can't undo past innovation. Like people who want to create peace can't, undo the creation of, you know, millennia of military technology. So they're locked into this idea that if I just make something a little more horrific, this will be the one that brings peace. Because there's, no, there's no other option. But it's insane. It doesn't work. One of the things that, ha one of the reasons that World War I was so horrific is that machine gun technology was now disseminated among all parties, but they were still, their military strategy was still based on a kind of like horse cavalry attack. And so wave after wave, they would send troops over in, the top, over right? the top, and they would just get mown down by the tens of thousands, mown down by just a few machine guns. It's weird how Gatling just underestimated the, uh, the <laughs> ability of generals to treat human life as disposable. And this is what was crazy about MAD. And the reason that it created such anxiety is that with each iteration of the delivery of these bombs, it did not make any of us feel more secure. In fact, quite the opposite, because the capacity within the minds of men to conceive of delivering these weapons, the horror didn't really inhibit them, at least in theory, in planning. Early on, they had the idea that they could build bunkers in order right. to Everybody survive. Everybody would have a little shelter in their backyard. Right, shelters in the backyards and big, big tunnels under mountains where the government would retreat and remain intact. All these systems, I mean, the whole reason- That's a that, real thing, right? Granite Mountain outside DC or whatever it's called. It really is. Raven Rock is there, which is, uh, and the Supreme Court had a bunker, the Strategic Air Command has a giant bunker in the mountains of Colorado. The whole reason that there's a presidential helicopter was uh, initially to evacuate the president in the event of a first strike and get him to his mountain bunker somewhere. Um, because prior to that, when the president needed to leave Washington, he did it in a like a limo caravan. Uh, and so there was actually a bunker 
war, a bunker escalation, as each side tried to bunkerfy themselves. A, we cannot allow a bunker gap. That's right. And then there was, and we built the interstate highways primarily to evacuate cities. So the interstate highway was initially called the, uh, you know, interstate defense highway. Yeah, Eisenhower was thinking like a general. He was. And thinking like, what we need to do is get people out of the cities fast enough that they aren't murdered. Well, Eisenhower realized pretty fast this wasn't possible. And no matter how many times they ran the scenario, you just couldn't do it. You couldn't put everyone in New York City in a bunker. And so the government stopped pushing this idea. There was still a sort of civil defense notion that it's, it's just kabuki. Yeah, you would put buckets of rice and uh, applesauce in the basements of big buildings. Like in like this uh, vault we've constructed here for assembling the omnibus. That's right, which is full of green beans and herbal tea, somehow at your insistence, which I am repulsed by. I want to make sure my herbal tea survives the apocalypse. Uh, so they stopped doing that, which is why when we were kids, there still were bunkers, you would see fallout shelter signs uh, leading to the basement of buildings. But in fact, no one had updated that system since the 50s and early 60s. I believe the interstate highways here through Seattle actually have built-in bunker space under some of the overpasses. And they were finally completed in the late 60s. I mean, the system was, you know, uh, evolving over time. In addition to Gatling, Alfred Noble, when he developed dynamite, he thought this would be it. Also believed that dynamite would make war so intolerable, would make the pro prospect of mass death so insane that it would be an, uh, a weapon of peace. And when he saw that his creation had been, was being used to just, you know, destroy life wholesale, that's part of his motivation to develop the Nobel Peace Prize. It should be called the Sorry About All the Dynamite Prize. That's right, the Sorry About All the Dynamite Prize. Well, you know, leaving aside the question of, you know, how, how long it took humanity to figure out that no innovation will scare us off from making war, the problem I always think about is just the possibility of accident, right? Uh, I mean, that's a huge problem if you're talking mad, mutual assured destruction. Weren't there multiple times during the Cold War when the wrong flock of geese shows up on the wrong radar screen? And it almost, you know, what would otherwise have been a series of phone calls, you know, because you've got to have these built-in triggers, automatic triggers, or else the, the mutual, the dominoes don't work. Right. So just, it doesn't take much to immediately start the, the chain in motion that ends in uh, global nuclear winter. This did happen multiple times. And it's partly because, because the technology to assure that we had the right intelligence, that we could tell a, a strike from a flock of geese, didn't keep pace with our ability to develop thermonuclear weapons that could eliminate 2 million people in one go. Oh, that's funny. So the bombs were getting smarter, faster than our CIA tradecraft was. Well, and especially true in the Soviet Union, where most of their intelligence was directed at convincing us that they had more capacity than they did. They actually had a little bit of a three-legged dog through this whole period because they just weren't able to keep up with the United States. What we perceived to be an arms race really wasn't much of a race. We were way ahead the whole time. They had big 
uh, wooden flats painted like missiles up like a Pushkin village, like an old tiny <laughs> Western set or something. They really did. And, and when we developed the ability from a submarine to launch a reliable ballistic missile, it really changed the nature of MAD because you could no longer assuredly eliminate a submarine. Yeah, they could be anywhere. They could be anywhere. And so what had formerly been... Seems like we're not so devoted to MAD as we are just wanting to nuke the Soviets. Weird. Well, all justified by wanting to defend ourselves against what we perceive to be a Soviet first strike. Hey, they're going to invent subs. We got to do it. And the Soviets were developing a missile defense system around Moscow, which would be able to intercept incoming missiles. And so we developed the MIRV system, which was multiple independent... Uh, re-entry vehicles. So we would send one missile up, but it would have three warheads that would go to three separate locations. So you needed three times the defensive missiles, which was completely out of, out of the Soviets' capacity. And also every attempt, like we had Nike missiles, which had the same premise, uh, but you, it's very hard to shoot a ballistic missile down with another missile. Sure. I mean, it's decades on and we're still not good at that. It's like shooting an arrow with an arrow. But again, Merv's changed. Now, I've seen the Disney Robin Hood do that, shooting down an arrow with another arrow thing. Uh, he so, is, so I know it's possible to, a, a, fox, to a, furry, a furry fox creature. Look, right. foxes have a lot better reflexes than humans do. But I don't know what furries do. Like, I've never been <laughs> to a furry convention, but I assume they're not all super athletic. Ken, if you want to go to a furry convention, I can take you. Maybe that should be a future episode of the show. I think we should. We should talk about furries. My favorite, um, my favorite story of nearly accidental mutual assured destruction is as late as '95. Do, uh, have you ever heard about this? Like the Norwegians launched some rocket that's supposed to study the Northern Lights or yeah. something. Uh, it's it's the most innocuous, uh, you know, Discover Magazine kind of a thing. And as a result, Yeltsin gets woken up in the middle of the night saying, hey, the American first strike is on the way. Is it? T do we destroy New York, LA, and Chicago? Like, is this, are we going to do this? You know, and I'm sure Yeltsin getting roused out of a drunken sleep is not a super reliable thing. And luckily, even hungover Yeltsin had the wherewithal to tell the generals to slow their roll. Well, the scariest event happened a little bit before this. In 1983, the Soviet air defense system uh, erroneously perceived some sunlight reflecting on high altitude clouds. No. And this sunlight, their system perceived to be an all out first strike of uh, like a mass launching of American missiles from North Dakota. And a Lieutenant Colonel in the Soviet Union, whose name was Stanislav Petrov was the, guy in charge of the bunker. They didn't have the two guys with the keys thing we did. They, they just old Stanislav. It was Stanislav the missiles. who was sort of sitting there in his chair. And the Soviets had introduced a new system, right? This was part of their new system of detection. And it hadn't really been vetted. And it like set off. It was a sort of like the movie War Games where it started a cascading system of computer, like a wave of computer switches. And Petrov, you know, got the message that it was, it was this massive strike. So Petrov was himself not 
empowered to launch the missiles. But Petrov was in the position of taking this information and relaying it up the chain. So he's going to be the guy to tell the Kremlin time to launch. Right. And this was like an interesting new wrinkle. It wasn't a situation where a rogue general decided uh, that we were, you know, losing our precious bodily fluids. It was a situation where the computers all were reacting and it came down to this one lieutenant colonel to make the phone call. And because of his own intuition, really, even though his the his whole training was... The playbook would have said... The playbook said, make that call. And then the Kremlin, on the other end of that phone call, they're not looking at the screens. Sure. They would have had no way to make that determination. But Petrov said, hold it. And he stopped the whole process and insisted that they double check and triple check the data. And eventually it was revealed that this was a false alarm. And so Petrov is kind of credited with being the one person in a position to actually have averted global thermonuclear war. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But I feel like there are like a half dozen of these similar scenarios, you know, where if people are a little jumpier, everything goes to hell. Which definitely mean I don't I don't know if that's a sign that the system is working. Look, in all these cases, people back down. Or if does does that just mean that mad doesn't work because the guy in the chair will always back down. Nobody wants to be the one who kills the human race. I mean, this is what we can't know. Uh, and the thing is, it seems like this happens a lot because it's been the topic of several films. Because the concept is so appalling and so like ironic. I always think about Doctor Strangelove where it's actually used for black comedy. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, well, let me finish, Dimitri. Let me finish, Dimitri. Well, listen, how do you think I feel about it? Can you imagine how I feel about it, Dimitri? Why do you think I'm calling you? Just to say hello? Of course I like to speak to you. Of course I like to say hello. And Dr. Strangelove is, is based on the idea, the initial idea that was sort of promoted by a man named Herman Kahn, who did a study for the RAND Corporation. 
And he said, listen, the logical follow through on this is actually an automated doomsday device. Like if we want to take this all the way to its logical extension, this is the culmination of MAD, is to have a machine that's prepared to make this decision. Dimitri, look, if this report is true and the plane manages to bomb the target, is this, is this going to set off the doomsday machine? Are you sure? Well, I, I guess you're just going to have to get that plane, Dimitri. Dimitri, I'm sorry that jamming your radar and flying so low, but they're trained to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's initiative. If the trigger's automatic, then nobody can bomb you because they'll know with 100% certainty that they'll get bombed right back. That's right. Now, when Herman Kahn said it, he was being sarcastic. Oh. I mean, he did not intend this to be a doctrine. He yeah, was it's, saying... It's so hard to convey tone in email, He was Herman. saying, philosophically, this is the logical extension. But in fact, and, and so it was, so Dr. Strangelove came immediately kind of after that as a parody of him. I don't know if you remember Dr. Strangelove, but they actually at one point say, uh, I commissioned last year a study of this project by the Bland Corporation. So it is, it's a, it's yeah. like a, it's a parody of this. And as a result of that, Herman Kahn kind of went down in history as someone who had actually suggested this when in fact it wasn't his intention. He was just saying how crazy it would be. Right. But in fact, in the 80s, the Soviets did devise a system of automated retaliation, which was called the dead hand. Here's my question. Yes. Did they tell us? Because the crucial plot point in Dr. Strangelove, the president flies off the handle because the Soviets invented a doomsday machine and does, they don't tell anyone. The whole point of the doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. <laughs> Why didn't you tell the world? And the Soviet ambassador says, well, it was due to be announced at the party Congress on Monday. You know? What it turns out is that the dead hand, again, was developed in response to an American system uh, called IRCS, which was a system that was designed to automatically launch weapons in retaliation. Now, the, this was, I mean, these systems were developed at a time when computers were still using punch cards. It's another example of how the technology of mass destruction, kind of like in World War I, the machine gun was developed far faster than the new strategy to, to deal with war by machine gun. Sure, I wouldn't trust a 1960s computer to balance my checkbook, much no. less to hold the, the fate of nuclear arms in the balance. Although those things did help us put people on the moon, multiple people. Uh, the thing about the dead hand and irks was that they weren't meant to be turned on until tensions got high. I see. If somebody, if somebody turns on something like you, I'm going to turn you on. Right. And so the chance of it just spontaneously, uh, responding to a flock of geese was pretty low, except the last point you want something like that turned on is when tensions are high, <laughs> you know, like that's when a flock of geese is really the highest risk. So during the Reagan years, he developed a, uh, or the military was working on the concept of space-based lasers. And at this point, the Soviet Union was protesting the development of these weapons technologies by saying, look, you are upsetting the balance of MAD with each one of these developments. We can't keep pace. We cannot build space-based lasers. Like, we just can't do it. And, and that's true. That's an argument that does upset Matt, but I assume we just didn't believe them. That was the essential problem was trust. We never believed them. And we always thought, and the thing is, I think that the, and this is something that will come out, futurelings will have a better sense of this than we do. 
I think the military was aware of the missile gap. And this was a this is part of the criticism of the military industrial complex, that it is powered by pork barrel finances and by a constant Gotta like, keep cu- these projects going. Yeah, cult of escalation. So at the end of the Soviet period, there was a, a period of detente where we eliminated vast stores of of weapons on both sides and felt like the risk was over and uh, that we were finally secure from this tremendous threat to human life and life on our planet. I assume you're going to tell me the security is all an illusion. Well, we did maintain a submarine force of ballistic missile submarines. And when we think about submarines, the ones that we think of in popular culture are the ones that are out there shadowing carrier groups and deliver. You got to talk very quietly. Yeah, right. Because ships are, are seeking you and there are, you're delivering SEAL teams and firing torpedoes. And those are, we do have those submarines. They're called fast attack submarines. But there's a whole other fleet of subs, completely unrelated to those subs, which are ballistic missile submarines. And their whole purpose is to go out to sea and disappear. Do nothing. And do nothing. And just sail around deep, deep, deep under the ocean. They And all of their technology is devoted to making them undetectable. And in fact, they mostly are. We have submarines that really could go right under your boat and you would have a sonar buoy dropped 10 feet above them and they would just sound like some shrimp. There could be a half dozen submarines in this recording studio with us right now. They're all around And we would have no idea. And these subs, their entire purpose is to threaten the Russians and the world with the prospect of a massive retaliation. They carry a whole long cluster of ballistic missiles, each one now containing 12 separate warheads, which can be delivered to 12 separate targets. So, you know, 18 missiles with 12 warheads each. And this is meant to keep the Pax Americana it suppresses the Soviet Union, who has, uh, who still has nuclear weapons on station, and their own fleet of subs. Their successor state, Russia. Their successor state, Russia. I'm sorry, did I say Soviet Union? You're still, you're still in 1984. I really am. Yeah, Red Dawn. Red Dawn was just a movie. It suppresses Russia, and also we hope North Korea, North Korea. and whatever other uh, potential act, bad actors. It's useless against a lot of bad actors though, right? I mean, you don't know where the rogue nuke is going to be coming from. If somebody got a, if somebody got a nuke out of Kazakhstan, it's not going to be clear what to shoot at, right? Well, and particularly if someone just puts a, a bomb in a shipping container and ships it into Staten Island on a, on a long haul freighter. Sure. And then just one day New York is gone and we never saw anything coming. Well, Matt also breaks if the other side does not want to win, but is merely an agent of instability and chaos, right? Like if the other side just wants instability and chaos, then uh, well, Mad breaks because, you know, they're going to get what they want as soon, the second we fire. All that Mad does is prevent nuclear war. But throughout the Cold War period, the United States and the Soviet Union fought dozens of proxy wars where they fought each other in secret. Uh, by fighting, say, for instance, the war in Vietnam 
or Angola or the or Nicaragua or Afghanistan. And all of these wars were wars in which the the Soviets and the United States had men on the ground and were contributing technology to either side. But because they never engaged in direct conflict, it never mushroomed into this this awful cataclysm. But it didn't put an end to war. It just changed the it suppressed global war, and like a big clump of jello in your fist as you squeezed your hand, all these little you know strands of jello came out through your fingers, and that was. Uh, all these wars that have plagued us through through the last 60 years. And that concludes Mutual Assured Destruction. Entry 820.JE5022, certificate number 27008, in the omnibus. If the tenets of Mutual Assured Destruction do not hold, and some massive cataclysm has wiped out all social media, the last thing you care about are... John's and my Twitter handles, but for the record, in our time, they were at Omnibus Project and individually at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. John was also on Instagram under the same name. Our address for email, which was in our time a popular form of written computer communication, was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. The thing that's terrible about nuclear weapons is that, as you said, now that they exist, and have existed, and proliferated, it's almost inconceivable that they won't be used again. It's just not in the nature of human beings. It's like Chekhov's gun, but it's Chekhov's 4,500 missiles. You don't, you don't want to show them and then never use them again. Right. Yep. I mean, and in a way, you don't, bring, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, but also you don't carry around a gun and, and not find a reason eventually to use it because everything looks like a threat. And there are a lot of nations that have nuclear weapons, the United Kingdom, France, Israel, now North Korea, India, and Pakistan, who hate each other and fight constantly. What could go wrong there? And there is a kind of, I mean, the reason that Pakistan has nuclear weapons is to create MAD. They've got their little subcontinental version of MAD. That's right, between those two nations. So as we talk to you, futurelings it seems unlikely that our civilization will survive. We seem to have just pushed the math to the breaking point here of how many flocks of geese we can survive. And it's, I mean, if you listen to the Omnibus Project, you will be able to draw a through line between all of our episodes because each one potentially contributes to a civilization bent on suicide. But it may be mad that produces the cataclysm for which we are preparing. We hope and pray that this catastrophe may never come. But if we are destroyed, which we surely will be, this recording is part of our legacy and is our patrimony to you. If Providence allows, we will be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.